You're listening to Agriculture, a podcast that interviews a range of inspirational people from the farming community with a whole host of interesting tales to tell. Join us in conversation to find out what drives them and their businesses, where they get their inspiration from and what they love about agriculture. I'm Mary Jane Laurie and I'm joined today by Chris Dyer, an archaeologist, historian and crofter. Chris moved to Shetland to take up an archaeology job and now runs his own croft, Garthcroft on Bressa. He's producing, amongst other things, native Shetland sheep and is aiming for self-sufficiency. Like most crofters, he has many roles on the island and also opens up his croft to visitors to give them an insight into his crofting life and the unique history of the area. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for joining us on the Agriculture Podcast. Can you start off by telling us a bit about your background? Where did you grow up? Absolutely. Thanks for having me along this afternoon. So my name is Chris Dyer. I was born in Hitchin in Hertfordshire, down in the south of England, about 20, 25 minutes or so on the train north of King's Cross in central London. Very pleasant, very suburban upbringing, but not a drop of agricultural blood in my body. Uh, I moved away to the east coast of Yorkshire to Hull to university to study uh, history uh, and archaeology and undergraduate and postgraduate degrees there. And having left the home counties and moved north to Yorkshire, I've continued the migration in a northerly direction for the past 17 years or so in Shetland. So when you left university with your degree in history and archaeology, did you start off working in, in archaeology or did you get at that point any interest in farming? I suppose going back through, well, through the generations in my family, there, there had been some involvement in dairy, actually, to the well, to the west of London. But in, in the early part of the 20th century, what I suppose stimulated the idea in my mind was it was through archaeology. So I, when I left university, undergraduate and postgraduate degrees and so on, it, it very much in history and in archaeology. And in many ways, I got quite lucky because in that time, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a lot of commercial development, sort of property development that was going on, and essentially any development that was deemed to be in historically sensitive areas warranted archaeological input from a planning perspective. So I, I would work for, a, for an archaeological firm that would tender for fieldwork contracts in, in areas that were either getting developed for perhaps for, for urban housing, for quarries, for waterways, and so on. And what, one of the jobs that I was involved with was actually a research excavation or was leading towards a research excavation in the Yorkshire countryside and towards the end of the day we were actually undertaking a, a geophysical survey so that's sort of prospecting and putting electromagnetic pulses into the ground uh, and endeavouring to see what lies beneath the topsoil without having to put a shovel in the ground and towards the end of the day the farmers whose, whose land it was in Yorkshire they they came along and obviously had a bit of a chat a bit of a liaison as to what you had found through the day Whereupon the sort of stock archaeological answer, of course, is, yeah, plenty of gold. We found all the goods, but uh, <laughs> we'll, just, we'll split it 50-50 and no one needs to know. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, they, well, anyway, they, they, they came along towards the end of the day. We had a bit of a chat and got on really well with them. And I, I sort of made a, an offer, I suppose, at the time I was, I was young in my early 20s. I, I wasn't sort of attached. I had lots sort of energy and creative, but a lot of time to, to spend doing things. And I, uh, I made the offer. I, I sort of spoke to the, the farmers and I said, well, look, You've got a really nice setup here. It's really interesting from a historical perspective. Beautiful landscape. I said, "Here's my number, and if you'd if you ever like a hand, uh, by all means come and come and give me a shout." And a couple of weeks went by, and I did get a phone call on Friday night, and the the gentleman said, "You know, we're going to be doing a bit of fencing uh, at the weekend if you fancy coming out." So I started then from a from an employment perspective, sort of Monday through to Friday, I work in archaeology and, and sort of travelling around about the north of England. 
working on archaeological excavations and surveys and essentially a sort of time team style lifestyle slightly elongated you'd have a sort of week here a month there undertaking archaeological assessments and then through the weekends i'd i'd go out and, and volunteer on this farm and, and bits of fencing bits of bits of sort of woodland and, and forestry work which has admittedly slight lesser sort of analogy to the shetland islands the largely largely treeless shetland islands yeah. that's how it was stimulated in my mind prior to moving to the shetland islands so you've worked down in Yorkshire for a wee while and then a job comes up in Shetland. What made you make that move all the way north? That's quite a big move, sort of geographically and culturally, I guess, because Shetland is obviously a very different place to Yorkshire. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Very different indeed. It had always appealed. You know, I was aware from a historic, from an archaeological perspective, over 6,000 years of, of human history and that absence of timber, that absence of, of woodland, of forestry, and the fact that for sort of six millennia or so people have been building in stone, whether it's going back to the, the Neolithic houses or the Bronze Age burnt mounds or the Iron Age brochs or the Viking longhouses, all of those different eras of chronological of human settlement have been built out of stone. And whilst that stone's been robbed and recycled, it, it tends to survive within the landscape. So those humps and bumps and, and undulations and sort of topographical reading of the landscape, you can it's still very much apparent within the Shetland Islands. I applied for a position in uh, 2006 for uh, it was the deputy regional archaeologist for the Shetland Islands and I'd, I'd seen this this post advertised uh, and it was just one of those moments in life where you you saw a, a sort of a job spec as, as people do and it sort of lists the essential criteria and the desirable criteria and I thought well I'd be mad not to at least try yeah. and put my hat, hat in for that ring and I'd, I'd you know perf- I wasn't I suppose I wasn't looking for a change at the time and I'd really enjoyed traveling around the north of England and a bit of an itinerant lifestyle and sort of working on a, a Roman villa one week and then an Anglo-Saxon house the week after that and medieval cemeteries and ecclesiastical sites the week after that. It, it had given me a good grounding, I suppose, as you might say, in terms of different eras of, of British history. And I suppose I was never particularly content just to do that. And I'd always enjoyed taking subjects. So I suppose principally at this stage, history and, and archaeology and endeavouring to promote and curate and interpret those subjects for for all. And whilst I've been undertaking archaeological field work, that was done in such a way as as walks and talks and and lectures and and open days on archaeological sites. And I always like endeavouring to take a subject and and to do that. A job came up within Shetland and I I saw the email and and I applied for it. And I I did it on the basis that, you know, I'd I'd never been to Shetland before in my life. We'd we'd been all over Scotland as, as children and so on. And but no, very much. I, I born in England, raised in England, and I think absolutely, especially reaching Shetland, it was that sense of adventure. The fact that you know, leaving Yorkshire, I don't know what it would have been six or seven hours on the train up to Aberdeen, overnight ferry uh, across to Lerwick. In advance of the of, of the interview, I thought, well, I'll I'll take a couple of days, endeavour to see a little bit of Shetland prior to the interview to get a feel for the place, because absolutely, as you say, a big kind of cultural lifestyle change in your sort of early mid twenties. And I remember, you know, the actual interview would have been back end of April. And so, I mean, that's that's the start, really, of, of the lambing in Shetland. Shetland's lambing is a good piece later as, as the rest of the UK. So the lambing was just underway. And so, you know, brilliant kind of springtime feeling and wonderful weather, trailing out to see Iron Age brocks and Viking longhouses and the sort of post-medieval artillery fortification that looks over Lerwick Harbour, very close to where I'm, you know, I can see it from where I'm speaking to you from Mycroft. And you kind of got the feeling that, well, actually, yeah, 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 you could fully see yourself within this landscape. It resonated, it chimed. You could, 
you could read the landscape, which I suppose from a historical perspective was really appealing. I was all sort of positive and, and enthusiastic. And then the day of the interview was just the apocalypse like in terms of <laughs> reaching the interview establishment from the, I think it was a bed and breakfast or hotel that I was in. And it was brilliant. So I sort of turned up at the interview as this, you know, drowned rat looking <laughs> tw tw tweedy suit, just absolutely sort of lashed, lashed my remains. And yeah, so you, you very quickly, you got the appreciation of how, especially in a, in an island archipelago like Shetland, which obviously has, you know, two large water bodies in terms of the North Atlantic one side and the, the, the North Sea the other side, just how quickly things could change and just how, just how sort of visceral that that change could be at that, at that sort of early spring time of year. So yeah, so the decision was taken, the vote was successful in the interview. Uh, and the move to Shetland was uh, was underway. So you got your job with what you say, Shetland Amnesty Trust, is that what they were called? It was, uh, it was with the Shetland, uh, Shetland Museum, through the Shetland, Shetland Amenity, Museum. Amenity Trust, yeah. Amenity Trust, sorry. So you worked with them for a number of years before you started thinking about crofting, is that right? Or did you get involved in the crofting way of life as soon as you moved up? Reasonably soon, it has to be said, into, uh, into, into the move into Shetland. <laughs> I think one of the classic links really with into the crofting and into the agricultural side of things was I'd, I'd been in Shetland perhaps a number of a number of weeks really and and the the, the Shetland Museum what, what what we would call the new Shetland Museum will be after sort of 16 70 years anyway it was getting opened by Prince Charles with his Duke of Rothsay hat on and the Queen of Norway Shetland obviously having sort of very sort of emotional and heartfelt ties to the to the east and, and to Scandinavia which I'm sure we'll touch upon and I was in the cheap seats at the back when this happened and, and the, the sort of royal cars, because I'd not been here very long, the royal cars pulled up and I always remember Prince Charles getting out of his car, sort of looking up and mentioning, I think the first thing he said was, oh, it's a pity it started raining again, or it started drizzling again. And, and then he obviously went off to cut the ribbon, do the speeches, head into the museum. And I remember even then thinking, you know, I'd only been in Shetland a number of weeks, but if I stayed for any length of time, I thought, I thought that's the autobiography title. It started raining again. It started drizzling again. <laughs> I was going to go with that, but no. I so I mean, I'd had that that interest that commenced at least started to get some some experience in Yorkshire, and when I moved to, I, I based myself in Lowick for the first year I was here. Just as, as I suppose any person moving into a place for the first time, Lowick is obviously there's about twenty two thousand people, just over twenty two thousand people living in Shetland. Uh, Lowick, the capital, is broadly speaking a, a a third of that so it, it, it seemed sensible at least as an initial base obviously the museum was based within within Lowick I was undertaking a lot of archaeological field work throughout but well after, after a year or so I'd, I um, I moved to the island of Bressa which is just five minutes on the ferry to the east of, of Lowick very much a crofting community well there's two or three, well, three, three sort of full-time farms uh, and but very much kind of crofting is, is, is the lifeblood blood of the island uh, sheep and, and cattle to a slightly lesser degree. I just start to, it was, it was kind of through an involvement with a local, a local history group that I got involved with and, and, and a number of the members of that history group were, were sort of tenant farmers and I, I approached them and I said, look, I'd like to come and work at you or kind of volunteer during a, some lambing, she uh, some, some kind of lambing seasons and a bit of clipping, a bit of shearing. And that started, yeah, I think for, for sort of nine or 10 years, I think the, the key thing really as an incomer coming in, it, it was difficult. It, it was certainly hard to get to get that opportunity to acquire land. So I, I kind of, I suppose I sought to do that in, some, in such a way by just consistently for the best part of a decade or so endeavouring to 
to show interest. I show interest at all times of year, whether it was helping out and, and going to the marts or, or lambing specifically. And, and a lot, of course, a lot of the infrastructure of agriculture within the Shetland Islands, a lot of it involves sort of travel to and from Ireland. So whether that was sort of taking sheep out of Ireland or putting sheep in or tups in and tups out and, and that kind of thing, it, it was often the kind of thing that was easier with a, a few more hands. So you began to get experience that way. And in due course, the opportunity came up to, to purchase the croft where we are now. I'm from the borders, Scottish borders originally, and farming, you know, southeast Scotland, which is a very different sort of farming landscape to what you've got in Shetland there. So can you explain to people who maybe don't know much about crofting, what crofting is and, and what that means for an island like Shetland and how important is it in the history and the culture of the area? Absolutely. Well, I suppose crofting from a historical perspective was essentially, it was very much born of subsistence agriculture and, and the fact that within the Shetland Islands, predominantly the agriculture is, 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 is grazing. There's an awful lot of hill ground. There's a lot of moorland and peat, generally quite an acidic subsoil. There are obviously parcels where small scale arable is undertaken, principally in the south part of the mainland of Shetland, where there's free draining sandier soils. Do they grow arable crops like barley then for, for whiskey? Is whiskey a big thing on Shetland? No, no, no. Gin, gin's a big thing. Like gin is a big thing throughout the world at the moment. Yeah. But but um, but no. So the the, the arable is, is 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 primarily for animal consumption, of course. Okay. And and I suppose historically, crofting, it it was absolutely born of that subsistence agriculture. In fact, that you know you'll be I'm sure you'll be familiar, especially in sort of highlands and islands. You see a lot of these ruinous structures where the house and the buyer and the yards and the rigs and, and everything's still there kind of fossilized within the landscape and you know that that was the unit that was the unit where you had to have access to to the hill the peatier the, the, the heather the poorer quality ground which was absolutely appropriate for the the native breed of, of shetland sheep which has obviously evolved over uh, millennia to be appropriate within the landscape and your slightly improved parcels of uh, well your, your improved areas of land your sort of in by land land that was surrounded by hill dikes, stone walls that would enclose areas of land that were put into small-scale arable cultivation, whether for barley and oats principally, this is too far north of latitude for, for wheat, but barley and oats were absolutely grown for centuries, you know, going back archaeologically, you see that. And then that feeds in very much the growing of oats and, and barley into the small-scale subsistence agriculture for the processing into, into oatmeal, into bear meal, and you see the you see the historic, the archaeological remains of these very small horizontal mills for the processing. You see the remains of corn drying kilns where, where that's, you know, after the seed and the straw were threshed and the seed would be dried prior to be being ground in, in these mills. So that all of these components are there. I suppose traditionally you tended not to, to own your croft, you tended to rent your croft. And obviously uh, developments through the 20th century have seen more people buy their croft outright and independently as owner occupiers. We were in a fortunate position that eventually, when the opportunity came up to, to buy Garth's Croft, that yeah, absolutely, it was an owner-occupier Croft. So when that opportunity came up to buy the Croft, did it feel like a big leap of faith for you to go from working as an archaeologist and doing a bit of volunteering on other people's Crofts to actually owning your own? Did that feel like a big step or did it feel like it was meant to be? I think, and, and this kind of also leads into the, your previous very good question, is that the it, it absolutely seemed like a, a logical step because many, many crofters, in fact, you know, I suppose the definition of crofting in, in contemporary contemporary Shetland, contemporary Highlands and Islands is just wearing that multiplicity of hats. You know, it's only been, well, up until a month or so ago, I was still technically a full-time 
archaeologist you know that's, oh, that's right. what i did for the best part of 17 years and then obviously the croft and the developing diversification sides of things alongside the coast guard alongside the firefighter all those all those hats you sort of you balance somehow that's absolutely just the way of it really in a classic agricultural sense it's absolutely not nine to five and you, and you have your well as i as i was undertaking when i initially took the croft you had your nine to five which was my museum related work my archaeological related work and the croft came sort of before and after that and, and every way in between but no it, it felt very much like a, a natural development in that i'd acquired the, i suppose the best part of 10 years of experience through seasonal work within shetland and lambing and shearing and a little bit of work with the the livestock markets and and so on we were in a fortunate position and, and the couple that, that sold us the croft they uh prior to put it on the open market they they came to us and they said look we know we know you're interested and essentially this will this will be coming up and it enabled my partner and i to sort of well now wife to think okay right we're let's let's get serious about this and and, and let's do it but it was absolutely i mean i was i was renting about a mile or so away on the island so it was it it was a small shift in terms of geography but it enabled us first and foremost to to acquire a yeah it's about a sort of 25 acre croft or so and okay. um yeah start to work with it from there and what was the croft like when you purchased it what sort of things did it have i'd actually come to to share on the croft a couple of years prior so i, I had visited I, I was kind of aware of where it was i was aware that yeah broadly speaking it's about 25 acres there was a bit of hill ground there was a bit of sort of improved ground inside that could be could potentially be be arable or, or, or hay really but the, i suppose the principal thing that was positive was that in addition to the to the ground the croft house the dwelling house sat essentially right in the middle of the croft ground so it, it gave us a dwelling house my partner at the time was was living in lerwick i was living in this island of Bresse. so it, it enabled us to to shift and be, to become anchored somewhere and so so then it all started and uh obviously but we i mean we were taking on a, a completely vacant holding that proceeded into acquiring stock and acquiring a bit of a bit of plant but nothing too onerous it has to be said you 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 had to rationalize things you know this was already yeah. this was only sort of 25 acres so it was a bit of sort of big ceiling and borrowing and so is it quite common in the crofting community to share machinery and equipment if you've all got quite a small croft to work with for things like hay time? Does everyone have a tractor or do you tend to share that sort of equipment? Uh, that could certainly certainly happen to a greater or lesser degree. For example, you know, when I'm when I'm getting hay worked with, I've, I've got a very kind neighbour and he'll come and bail to me and then I'll go and give him a hand when he's bailing and get everything stowed and get everything kind of undercover and so on and so forth. But I suppose the other way of looking at it is that from an employment perspective, across the Shetland Islands, employment is, is in a very positive fashion at, at present and very kind of dynamic economy. And whether it's fishing, whether it's agriculture, whether it's uh, renewables, marine engineering, the sort of heritage sector, visitor services, tourism now is obviously coming back in a very positive way. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of options for employment. And what you tend to find, or what my experience would be, with, certainly with the crofting environment within Shetland, is that whole holdings have got sort of added to over the years perfectly naturally i suppose historically there's been a semantic differentiation between you know what is a crofter and what is a farmer and the, and that but it would probably be accurate to say there are now people who would still call themselves crofters in shetland but they you know that they would have quite substantial holdings but they you know they yes. hold down other work as well so yes machinery can be shared but also bear in mind 
crops were originally small parcels of land for subsistence agriculture. I suppose the reality of the situation is not everyone wants to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go and feed pigs or kai or that kind of thing. So holdings over the years tend to get aggregated together. And when it gets to that kind of state, well, then it, it makes perfect sense to sort of invest in tractor and plant in machinery in, in what you're needing for your job so that you're not necessarily reliant on a million other people. Yeah, and it takes the physical aspect out of it. If you're having to move bales every day, for example, to take out to feed sheep, it's, it's nice not to have to lug them out physically, isn't it? So um, talking about livestock then, can you tell us about the livestock that you have on your croft and why you chose the breeds that you have? Bearing in mind that the croft was originally it was principally our our home and it is, has evolved into our lifestyle and then subsequently it's evolved on to, to the business. Uh, it, it, for me, it was always the, the historic influence, having worked as a historian, having worked as an archaeologist. From an excavation point of view, you know, you're looking at the, the bones you're finding and, the, you know, what, what are you finding? What, what animals did those first settlers bring 6,000 years ago? How have they developed? How have they evolved? So I sought to concentrate on the native breed of, of Shetland sheep is, is very kind of small body, perfectly adept for the for the landscape of the Shetland Islands, which is obviously you know I think there are over a hundred days of the year which are technically classed as a as a gale, so it's it, there's quite considerable wind here. But the Shetland sheep is there's a wonderful phrase that it survives on the promise of one blade of grass every May. That's the sort of <laughs> if you were dealing with the Shetland sheep. So so hardy is the more diplomatic way of putting it. And um, and as a consequence, it's it, it's perfect. And historically, it was perfect, of course, because you know, if you were cultivating your your rigs for a, a little bit of barley and oats 200 years or so ago, well, it's no sense having the sheep around your steading. So the sheep needed to go to the hill um, mm-hmm. and you needed, you needed a, you know, a, an animal that could cope in a force 10, force 11 gale and, and, and could still lamb outside, raise a lamb successfully. And I, and I think as well, one of the principal things that led me towards the Shetland breed of sheep, there was the hardiness element, but there was the, the variety the fact that there are over 60 different colorings and markings of the Shetland sheep, that if nothing else, aesthetically, uh, it, it seemed to be appropriate. You know, I'd always imagine, you know, if I was a, a Viking arriving in Shetland a thousand years ago, or I'd, I was part of the sort of era that built the Brocks in the Iron Age two, two and a half thousand years ago, it, it, there would be this, there wouldn't be uniformity in agriculture. There would be variety. So there would be murit lambs and brown lambs and cat muggets and gull muggets and yoglets and fleckets, all these different wonderful, often Scandinavian linguistically influenced terms to describe the particular markings or colorings of the Shetland sheep. Again, sort of paying respect and reverence to the sort of uh, Scandinavian influence on the Shetland Islands, which of course has been, historically has been part of Scandinavia for longer than it's actually been part of Scotland, which is a sort of a little known historical fact, certainly one worth being aware of. Concentrating on the, on the Shetland sheep, and and then related to that, we also uh, started working with pigs and with poultry. So yeah, Shetland sheep with the pigs. We again, it, a lot of these things have evolved. And my original intention, probably as many many crofters would have empathy with, would just be to acquire a, a few, you know, a few fattening pigs. Maybe get them in the April May time, fatten them, and, and put them off at the back end. And, and that's how it started. And then we got saddlebacks for the most part. And there was one year where we had saddlebacks and they, they just had such good nature. They're really, really fine. And I thought, well, I think we had we only had four of them. And I thought, well, we're, we're not needing four pigs worth in the freezer here. Then I thought, well, I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep out of one of them back and try and get some gilts or some sows or, or, or whatever and try, try breeding with them just because the, the nature of this the saddleback was, was really fine. 
we started breeding pigs, which was great. Really enjoyed that. We only had uh, everything has to be prefixed here in the context context of the the listener, but also the context of the croft. Like this is really really small scale. We're we're speaking forty odd breeding ewes. I at, at my height, I only had three breeding sows. The classic croft was born of the idea that you produce enough to pay your rent and you produce enough for yourself. And brilliant if there's any surplus, but that, and that was what was influencing me because bear in mind, I was still working full-time as, as an archeologist. And, and um, so no, we, we, we only had three sows, but obviously they were farrowing twice a year. Iron age sows, which I always liked the idea of the iron age sow thinking how inherent iron age, the iron age is to Shetland with the development of the brochs and then into the Picts and, and so on. And then I read, so I got this iron age guilt and uh, I thought that was great, but the, the Iron Age breed I then latterly discovered was only created in the 1970s to sort of mimic oh. <laughs> the, the wild boar. So anyway, so yeah, Tamworth Iron Age, Saddleback Sow, Saddleback Boar, everyone that's worked with pigs will know it, it, it gets pretty incessant in terms of the short gestation period. And then one of the issues I was, I was finding with the pigs in Shetland was actually it works wonderfully well in the sort of spring and summer months. And that's obviously when you know either people are bringing pigs up from, from south, from Aberdeenshire, or they're kind of working with wieners, but it's tough, you know, keeping pigs outside any time of the year, you know, anywhere is tough. The subsoil conditions where my croft is, it, it wasn't it wasn't viable in the long term to, to keep doing that. And then when my daughter came along uh, just a, just a year or so ago, we took the decision to put the put the breeding pigs off. But I think I lasted about two weeks and then I said to my wife, I'm gonna I'm gonna be getting some I'm gonna be getting some pigs again. And and yeah, we just uh if you can hear any, if you can hear any sounds in the background, I don't know if that's coming through. That's a cruise yeah. ship. All right. <laughs> yeah, we can hear that. We'll wait for it um, to stop uh, honking its horn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so again, part of the uh, the the seasonal nature of Shetland is that uh, probably from the end of the end of April through until uh, the start of September. Sometimes later, we we start to see these these cruise ships, uh, which are, which are coming in with several thousand people every day. Well, not every day. Um, but they're very much part of the economy and they've, they've, they've come back at a, an encouraging point of view from an economic point of view, but they've come back really quite quickly. So anyway, that's what you hear in the background. So going back to traditional breeds and native breeds, obviously they've got a place in sort of very isolated locations such as Shetland, where you've got climate challenges and topography challenges. Do you think there's still a place for rare breeds and traditional breeds in modern agriculture, or do you think it's more a crofting thing rather than on a larger scale oh i mean it, it's difficult it's absolutely difficult I, i'm not i'm certainly not going to overly romanticize this we choose to do it i think it's respectful of the type of ground that we have which is quite sort of hilly ground quite quite acidic we, we only have a couple of small parks that we can get some hay or some silage from purely from a from an economic point of view during lockdown during the pandemic i started working and best job in the world working with the Shetland Livestock Marketing Group, the sales sales season, which is principally in late August through to sort of early mid November, really within mm-hmm. Shetland, when when sort of store lambs and so on are being shipped south. But there there are obviously spring sales as well. You know, you just need to see the differentiation between your Shetland lamb and your Shetland ewe, your commercial breeds, your Texels, your Lins, Sheviots, and Suffolks. And whilst interestingly, there is a a market, I would argue, there's a, there is a market just because of how hardy the Shetland breed is. That obviously tends to attract some buyers. But when you look at a, a Shetland ewe alongside a, a Cheviot ewe or a Shetland lamb, really, at this time of year, you know, four months in compared to a four-month-old Suffolk, they are they're absolutely completely different 
uh, mm -hmm. animals and, and that's reflected obviously in, in the price yes of course there's significantly greater work that one would have to do in terms of uh, your more commercial crossbreeds or your more you know Suffolk, Suffolk lambs are, are, are really probably the sort of principal store export from the Shetland Islands and absolutely in, in order to uh, facilitate that you're if you if you go back a bit you're, you're needing plant and, and silage and, and buildings obviously to it's, it's a lot different to a Shetland ewe that will lamb outside in a sleet shower and the Shetland lamb is is up and it's suckled and it's it's effectively got its sleeves up after a couple of hours saying right okay what are we going to do now then let's go <laughs> um, yeah. very completely different animals so so yes there is a place in terms of the the rare breeds I, I would argue from a textile perspective I think that's where Shetland has really uh, identified and is exploring very successfully in terms of the textile market so you get the great work of the uh, the wool brokers within Shetland sort of identifying and marketing the qualities of the native Shetland breed of wool and that's then sort of developed probably over the past 10 years or so into the Shetland Wool Week which is a celebration of, of the native breed of the Shetland sheep and of the beneficial properties and from a fiber perspective of the wool and so we, we receive you know COVID and the pandemic notwithstanding hundreds of visitors every year that are specifically coming to Shetland a big North American demographic which is absolutely tremendously welcome coming to the Shetland Islands to, to learn more about uh, the native breed of sheep. So talking about you know Americans coming to the island you've you've also opened up your croft for to doing croft tours so that you can share what you're doing with visitors to the island tell us why you decided to start doing that. Well in terms of the the line of work that I've been in in terms of in terms of heritage in terms of history and, and archaeology a big proportion of my work for several years now has been endeavoring to promote and interpret historical sites to to visitors but but not necessarily exclusively visitors from an educational point of view from a lifelong learning point of view for schools for colleges for universities and so on and so i would work i'd work on viking longhouses or iron age brocks and settlements and pictish houses and often a place like the shetland islands is there is a visitor economy of course there's a visitor economy and that will tend to sort of begin to rise uh, in late April, early May, and then sort of ebb away in the autumnal months. And there's there's another peak again uh, in in a sort of early to mid January when we have our Upheliar, our, our our Viking Fire Festival celebrations. My background in history and archaeology, I I just felt completely comfortable trying to interpret and, and curate content for for people in a heritage setting. So sort of you know if you walk up to a two thousand year old Iron Age brock, the chances are it's not going to look like it did. 2000 years or so ago or exclusively at least so your responsibility is to try and allow people to sort of get an impression of what what life was like and because the sort of being a crofter and the various hats you wear I, I started advertising that I could I could do that at the croft and people were people were interested because what we were doing was specifically focusing on on a little bit of everything so pigs and poultry mm -hmm. uh dry stone so I, I build all of the dry stone I've started contracting now as a drug well, the past five years or so now contracting as a, as a dry stone mason uh, building and, re and repairing a lot of the, the dry stone within the island and, and further afield within Shetland so and all of these components sometimes are quite unfamiliar to people taking where I was down in the south of England where I'm from you know why, why do you need to build dry stone walls well you know, you're going to get sort of 80 90 miles an hour wind and sometimes it might be good for things to shelter behind it and obviously if you're wanting to encourage 
trees and bushes and shrubs and wildlife then then absolutely is part of the vernacular architecture so because what we were doing again focusing on principally on the native and heritage breeds in terms of the sheep and breeding specifically to retain and enhance the coloring of of animals that would you know from an economic perspective it's it's craziness it's madness you know the, the, the shetland lamb compared to your retail of a suffolk lamb is it's absolutely not comparable but that's not why we started doing it we started doing this because this is our life it's our lifestyle it's what i want to share with people if they're interested and then building in different aspects of um the historic environment and the natural heritage which are all sort of aspects that are interrelated and come very naturally after sort of 20 years or so of, of experience so it sort of led itself into a into a package if you like so yeah absolutely there's the croft and we've we open up the croft and sort of no doors are off, are off limits and get the dogs and, and work them on the sheep and people are interested in, in the breed and and the, and the and the wool very much so interested in the wool and then it combines with the historic environment well it combines also with the you know referencing that you know what was crofting and the subsistence agriculture so we we probably are about 80 percent self-sufficient on the croft in terms of there's obviously you know pork and lamb and, and poultry but with our polycrop structure and our on our root vegetables inside the uh, dry stone yard that i've built you're growing a, a phenomenal amount of both root, root vegetables and soft fruits and pear trees and apple trees and plum and cherry and, and and raspberries and so on so people find that approach quite well hopefully they find it quite interesting that you can yeah you can do a little of a lot yes. and you're you're never going to feed the five thousand doing it but if your initial impetus as it would have been 250 years ago was to sort of sort of you know support your family support your community if you can do that and then beyond that obviously with my professional background as, as a historian a lot of interest and a lot of field work on on sites of of military heritage pertaining to the second world war second world great war and second world war specifically and within shetland there's there's so many really interesting historical remains of that era so it's become a package where people come to the island they're visiting the croft but then they're also interested in the, the wider heritage so we're sort of traveling around the island i'm then acting as a professional historian professional archaeologist endeavoring to sort of interpret the island for them and then we're in a fortunate position that we've got a couple of establishments on the island that we can sort of build in either with refreshments cafeterias hotels and so on so it makes a really yeah just it's developed completely organically you know when we when we walked through the front door on, on the evening that we became crofters we absolutely wouldn't have said that this was the way it was going to go yeah. uh, but, but i think it's it's more like i know it's genuine and honest because it's because it's developed organically so you're obviously a new entrant to farming yourself what top tips would you give to someone starting out in agriculture or crofting my top tip would just be show interest absolutely keep on showing interest showing interest try not to be too downhearted when opportunities don't come they're not going to come every day, but just consistently show that you're interested, whether that's helping, whether that's volunteering. That's absolutely how opportunities presented themselves to me. And I'd heartily endorse that to anyone else. Just consistently show that you're, that you're interested, go along, help out, attend your local marts, start sort of meeting people there. Believe me, opportunities will come through that. It might, it, it might take time, but yeah, perseverance. What drives you personally? Why, why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? I, I have a young family. I want to support them. I want to look after them. I want to be able to tell my daughter some some stories. Shetland's folklore is, is rich in all this kind of Viking and Old Norse stories. I want to be able to support 
my family first and foremost, but I also feel responsibility as, as an incomer to the Shetland Islands, as an Englishman, as, as an incomer to the Shetland Islands, I, I have a responsibility to be an ambassador. I have that responsibility to, to tell those stories in a responsible and, and an objective fashion. And so that responsibility weighs heavy sometimes, but that drives me to do what I do to support my family and also to be the best possible representative for the Shetland Islands. Finally, Chris, what is success for you and how do you measure it? Well, about a month ago, I handed in my resignation as a full-time archaeologist with the, with the Shetland Museum. In the world we're living in presently, when there are many, many concurrent crises, that might have seemed quite a strange decision to take, take a step away from a, from a full-time job with a pension and all these kind of things. But the Croft was going and, and hopefully continues to go in a positive direction in terms of interacting with visitors, producing digital content, working with the, the beauties and idiosyncrasies of, of social media, and principally on Instagram, and trying to sort of endeavour to show a, a lifestyle experience, as you might say. And the fact now that we're consistently seeing people getting in touch and they're interested in what we're doing, and by extension, therefore, they're interested in the, in the native breeds, they're interested in the history, the archaeology, the wildlife, the natural heritage of the Shetland Islands. I think it's as, it's as simple as that. It's as simple as just this morning, prior to recording this, we had a group, a group from North America who were visiting Shetland for a few days. They took the opportunity to, to come to the island of Bresse. Even in doing that, in coming to the island, everything is interrelated. They're supporting the, the families who work on the ferries. They're supporting the, the island shop. They're supporting the cafeteria. They're supporting my business and what, what I'm trying to do. So that's what success looks like. It's hard to define it because it's an experience. It's, it's people leaving in a satisfied way that they've, they've had a great experience and that they understand more of how contemporary Shetland works. But sharing that experience and once again being the best possible representative I can that's what success would be. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to talk to us today. And you've given us a really fascinating insight into your, your life on your croft and all the historical and cultural things that are going on where you are as well. It's just been brilliant to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you're interested, I'm perhaps most active on Instagram at Garth's Croft Bresse. At Garth's Croft Bresse, there's lots of free videos. There's lots of footage and content all about the traditional crofting life and the native and heritage breed. So at Garth's Croft Bresse on Instagram and www.garthscroftbresse.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Agriculture. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow and subscribe to our show. Leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find our contact details in the show notes below. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode of Agriculture, you may enjoy some of our other sister podcasts, such as Crofting Matters, the monthly podcast series that tackles all aspects of crofting life, or Thrill of the Hill, a monthly show focused on those living and working in the upland environment. Come back soon for more agriculture. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.